This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. This week, we're sharing a couple interviews from our time at General Assembly in Atlanta this last summer. And if you recall from our episode with Meredith Stone, we had some significant audio issues. I hope it won't be a distraction for you because these conversations are worth a listen. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University's School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 706-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu. Well, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Paul Baxley. He's the Executive Coordinator of CBF Global. Paul, thanks for tolerating the next 15 minutes with me. (laughs) Thanks so much for the invitation, Andy. I'm looking forward to it. So my my most pressing question is actually a, a pastoral care question for you. Your Wake Forest Demon Deacons headed into the postseason looking unbeatable mm-hmm. and came up short in what should have been the final series of the College World Series because it was that good of a series. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm doing well. Uh, one of the things about growing up a Wake Forest Demon Deacon is you really don't have any life experience that prepares you to actually win a national championship. <laughs> 
So, um, yeah, I thought they played amazing. Uh, you know, and I was really impressed with the culture and camaraderie of that team. I think they represented Wake Forest really well. Um, it was a little ironic, though, because when I was a kid, 10 years old, the only time in my childhood, Wake Forest had a good football team, 1979. Uh, they beat Georgia on opening day in Athens, which became ironic later in my life. <laughs> Auburn came to Winston-Salem, and Wake Forest came back huge in the second half and beat them. Football team went all the way to the Tangerine Bowl, that's been renamed six times since, and lost to LSU to end that season. So uh, this is not the first time in Wake Forest history that the LSU Tigers have been at the end of a Wake Forest dream season. The, the wounds the wounds run deep. There so, you go. Uh, you're not here to talk about SEC sports or ACC sports. So in, in January 2019, you were unanimously voted to be elected the next executive coordinator of CBF Global. With political unrest, cultural and social tension mounted, continued race, racial inequality, and a global pandemic later. How's your first four years going at the helm of CBF? So, the first year went pretty much exactly as I thought it would. I spent almost that year traveling, visiting congregations, visiting partner schools, touring states and regions, um, and really started to see the strength and power and beauty of this network. We celebrated my first anniversary in this job by starting the global pandemic. <laughs> and so everything uh, changed in that week that started on Sunday, March the 8th, 2020. But I have to say, even in the early weeks of that pandemic, I was inspired by the resilience of CBF congregations. I was inspired by the courage of CBF pastors who not only found the way to work with their lay leaders to reimagine the whole shape of the ministry of the church, but also to speak courageously about all the other things going on in our world that the pandemic was making more intense. And so in the, the pain and the trauma and the challenge of the spring and summer of 2020, I watched CBF congregations dig into the adaptability that's at the heart of our DNA that kind of comes out of the book of Acts and kind of come to life in different ways. And although that was exhausting, I think now as our congregations are starting to imagine their next steps, some of those same qualities are there. So it was inspiring to watch our congregations meet that moment. And it was inspiring to watch our staff and our state and regional coordinators and our partners uh, start responding to that moment. And I think across our fellowship, we tried to make the best use of that second and third year by trying to get really clear on our priorities, trying to find ways to do our core work virtually, um, try to find ways to support congregational leaders, imagine new ways to resource. And so although it wasn't at all what we had in mind, and there was nothing about what we were facing that was good at all, I saw God work in unexpected and surprising and redemptive ways. So that as we come, you know, at the beginning of my fifth year in this job, uh, I really am hopeful about where CBF is. Uh, so a lot of us were not expected. 
Um, I knew I was going to already have a learning curve coming into a job when, you know, I spent the last 15 years pastoring congregations, and this is such a different kind of pastoral ministry. But I've been encouraged, I've been energized uh, by what I've been able to see all around me, and I've watched our fellowship harness. And then the last year or so just gave me an amazing opportunity to get to know our Global Missions field personnel, our Global Missions staff as we went through the transition after Stephen resigned. And it's just been beautiful to see that part of our ministry that has always been so significant for CBF uh, find even new strength and new focus. So I've been encouraged, even if it wasn't what I expected. Let's, let's go back to one of those last pieces there, which is before you, you know, came to CBF, you served in the local church for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a pastor at heart. How, how does that influence the way that you lead and co-cultivate the work of CBF? So I think I still bring, first and foremost, a congregational focus. So when I think Baptist Church, when I think CBF Baptist Church, I still think congregation. Uh, I was reminded pretty early in the pandemic that the world in which I pastored no longer existed, which uh, deepened my desire to find ways to listen to pastors and congregational leaders uh, with an openness and a curiosity to see what was being experienced in real time in congregational ministry. But I really do believe the core purpose of CBF is to strengthen congregations, support congregations, and draw them into a a mission and witness that no congregation can have on their own. So I I bring a really congregational focus. Um, I've tried really hard to maintain a pastoral vocational identity. So preaching is important to me. Writing pastorally is important to me. um, And I've tried to find ways to keep that even in this very different kind of calling. So in nearly 30 years of our existence as a fellowship, we have come out of trauma and, and the challenges of maturation of creating something new. How do you think we've you know, come to define ourselves as cooperative Baptists? <laughs> you know, I think one of the most beautiful things to watch as our fellowship has grown in the last several years is that some of the new congregations and the new leaders that the Holy Spirit is bringing us is helping our fellowship see our identity more clearly. Because now our whole fellowship is not composed of people who came out of a prior round of Southern Baptist trauma uh, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Uh, God is bringing to us new generations, Baptists whose heart languages are different, congregations uh, in other parts of the United States, and welcoming them into our fellowship and learning from them has caused us to start finding new ways of celebrating who we are as CBF. Uh, My colleague Casey Jones uh, told our staff the other night, and I think she's absolutely right, that the CBF experience doesn't have to be sold. (laughs) It just has to be witnessed and experienced. And in the work of their outreach and growth team, they find that as people get to know who we are as CBF, they're drawn to us. We don't have to have a defense or um, an, you know, a rebuttal of somebody else. So I think we're learning to talk more and more about who we are, who God is calling us to be, how we're uniquely equipped to carry out God's mission in the world, 
Uh, and to do that not from a place of we're less than somebody else or in relation to somebody else, but this community is beautifully unique and it's poised to become more so. And so as we've turned toward even the last several weeks to respond to things going on elsewhere in the Baptist world, many have said to me they're glad we have not tried to explicitly rebut the actions of others, but instead just name who we are, where we're trying to go, what we feel called to do, and say, you know, if that resonates with your spirit, if your heart resonates with this heart, come join us. And I think that's a sign that we're starting to have a more positive, proactive way of talking about who we are. You know, as Baptists, our foundational exclusive is believer's baptism. I mean, even before the Four Fragile Freedoms, before anything else we talk about, what separated Baptists from everybody else in Protestant Christianity was we baptized believers on a confession of faith, which means at our core, we're, the, we're Christians who constitute the church based on what we say positively about Jesus. So we should be able to have something to say, not about who we are not. That's what happened at Caesarea Philippi. They first started saying who Jesus was not. Well, you're not this, and you're not that, and you're not the other. Not that kind of Jesus follower, right? And Jesus said, no, no, no. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question that invites the confession of faith that brings us to the waters of baptism. So I think digging into that part of our identity... Like, what's our witness? What's our story? Where have we seen Jesus? How do we describe that in our own language? Um, I think digging in, that's really, really important. You spoke the other day about wanting to, uh, you know, name the Baptist, you know, the name Baptist to be redefined and not hijacked by those who had besmirched the name with yep. their ill will. So w what does that look like, practically speaking? <laughs> So I find myself thinking more and more about what it would mean to make being Baptist beautiful to the larger world. Talk about holy ambition. What would it mean to make being Baptist beautiful? And I think it means really digging into the core of who we are at our best. So that's part of what I talked about a minute ago, is having something really positive and compelling to say about Jesus. That's being Baptist at our best. It's coming toward one another with respect and honor of the sole competency of every person. And being willing to come into spaces where we all don't agree on everything and not be afraid of each other. But to dig deep in our Baptist DNA and recover what in some places is a lost practice, namely honoring dissent. And saying that just because someone doesn't see everything just the way I do doesn't mean they don't love Jesus. It doesn't mean they're not called to a mission we can share. And even more, sometimes it's indifference that we're challenged to learn. I talk about being provoked toward love and good deeds. Sometimes where I'm most positively provoked is when I'm with someone who sees something different from me, but by being present near them, I come to see differently. So I think being Baptist in a beautiful way at our best requires approaching each other in humility, approaching each other in love, giving each other space to bear witness to Jesus from our deepest places of conviction 
and allow the, the love of God in Jesus Christ to bring us together in ways that like-mindedness or blue or red or echo chambers can't do. So I think that kind of Baptist community has a chance to really be a witness and not um, look like the, the power-dominated, ugly, controlling, abusive kind of Baptist representations that we've seen on and off again throughout history. Well, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Paul Baxley, Executive Coordinator of CBF Global. Of course, you can learn more about his work and leadership at cbf.net. Paul, thank you for making the time to have a conversation tonight. Glad to. Thanks, Andy. You don't have anything else going on this week, do you? It's a wonderful week. Yeah. It's a great week. So many beautiful things happening. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. We are sitting down for a conversation with the new co-coordinators of the CBF Great Rivers Fellowship, Brittany Caldwell and Shane McNary. Brittany and Shane, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Okay, Brittany. Uh, what is the Great Rivers Fellowship? The Great Rivers Fellowship is a new state and regional organization of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. It is com comprised of the CBFs of Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas who have joined forces because we believe ministry is done better when it's done together. Just so we're clear, when we were living in Louisiana, nothing gave me a greater joy than taking off Arkansas fans by calling them Arkansas. So uh, y'all should y'all should adopt that. You're you're the one that's living in Arkansas, right? Yes, I am an Arkansan. Okay. Uh, Shane, you're you're coming off the mission field after nearly two decades. Walk us through your sense of discernment to step away from one form of ministry into another. Um, Thanks for the question because it reminds me that that really the walk is a continuation of a journey. Uh, so far as I'm still in transition from Slovakia to uh, back to Little Rock, uh, where my wife and I will be based, uh, it's realizing 
much of the ministry that I'm going to be doing in Great Rivers Fellowship is similar to what I have been doing for the last two decades. It's with different folks. Um, but in Slovakia, I navigated between different cultures of Roma and Czech and Slovak, and now I get to navigate between blues and, and jazz and whatever Arkansas produces. Um, and so that, that type of experience for me really is a... I see it as a continuation. Uh, so perhaps it took me two decades to be prepared to do what I'm doing now in, in Great Rivers. Brittany, after pastoring a church in North Carolina, you're also shifting to a new contextual ministry. Walk us through your sense of discernment to this new role. Yeah, so I am originally from Mississippi. I was born and raised in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, went to Mississippi College, and then after that pursued a Master's of Divinity at Truett, which is in Texas. Uh, it's kind of been a long pilgrimage for me where I left Mississippi um, kind of happily uh, as a woman in ministry, and I went to Texas and I learned that turns out women can be pastors and preach and those sort of things. Never been told that before. Uh, and we were in Texas for six years and then moved to North Carolina. My husband and I co-pastored a small church together up there, Nobles Chapel Baptist Church. We were there for five years. And it was kind of a... It was a year-long discernment process for us where we knew that God was calling us to the next step in our journey. We weren't sure where that would be. Um, we did not want it to be back in Mississippi or Louisiana, where we were originally from. We really loved North Carolina, loved our church, loved the CBF up there, loved everything about it. Um, but it was just gradually over time, God just kept chipping away uh, at the barriers that were holding us back from moving uh, to a place that we called home for the first 18 years of our lives. So, yeah, we had started praying about it, um, and there were several things personally that happened. Uh, our parents needed help. We have aging grandparents. Um, we have a daughter who was four, and she didn't even know her grandparents, and uh, having help with her was a big factor in moving, and it was just a moment where we realized that we were walking with our congregants through these very difficult things in their lives, but no one was walking with our own families through their difficult things. So we made the decision to move back in September, really with no plan, just knowing that that is where we were meant to be. Um, and we also just felt very much like this part of the country, the deep, deep south, it is so held in chains by conservatism and fundamentalism. They do not know the Jesus that I have come to know, and they need that Jesus, that, that grace, that love, and that understanding um, in order to find wholeness, in order to find uh, shalom. So... Yeah, we moved back with that in mind, knowing that CBF had something that to offer our home states. So your co-coordinators, uh, I had the honor of being a part of the, the board that was forming this new thing and cultivating this new position. And, and then you ran away. And then I ran away. But uh, <laughs> it was not running away. It was equally called to other things. Uh, <laughs> um you know, and it was funny is um, 
you can either blame me or thank me because I that was the hill I was going to die on that this didn't need to have a coordinator and some underlings this needed to be new and it needed to be different and the need to be collaborative so uh, I wonder if you'll walk us through how your roles function separately and, and then together uh, Brittany we'll start with you okay uh well, I think certainly uh, we are still learning one another and still learning like our gifts and our talents and our abilities. Um, but we came into this very prepared for a co-coordinator model. I had co-pastored with my husband and kind of watched how that model develops according to personalities and strengths and callings and things like that. Shane had done a very similar thing with his wife Diane on the mission field. So we came in with an idea of what being a co-coordinator would look like. Um, I think that the idea was to kind of have Shane as coordinator of ministry, so he would work within the church, and I'm coordinator of community engagement, so my job would be to take the church and help them engage their community. The, but I knew, and Shane knew coming into the role, that there was going to be nothing that was going to be so well-defined as that. There's a lot of overlap in what we do. There's a lot of collaboration in what we do. Um, at the moment, we're still in the process of kind of building the Great Rivers, uh, and we have done different things to that extent. Uh, combining three budgets into one has been a daunting task, and Shane has really taken... Uh, on most of that uh, because he's still been in Slovakia part of the time, so he's been able to really focus on some of those administrative tasks that I have less experience with, but because I've been here and I started up and running in March, I've been able to go and see a lot of the churches and pastors and people in person start holding some of those meetings, start hearing from the people in our region about what can GRF be for them, what can it do for them, how can it support them and their ministry in the best way possible. Um, and it's just been really rewarding. And for me coming into it, I, I was asked by someone uh, whose context is a generation or two removed. Um, and they had, they had used the phrase about, well, um, somebody's going to need to be the alpha. Uh, and that is not language that I speak. Uh, when I think about what we're going to do as co-coordinators, um, I have used the image of a seesaw. And if the seesaw is ever flat, one of us is not needed. Uh, it is a process of when one of our gifts is more appropriate to the task, then we will take the lead on that. And we will, as Brittany started off her response, learning each other, then we will see, okay, this is more appropriate for Brittany to do. Uh, if we were to draw uh, a circle, then diagram about our responsibilities, there is an awful lot of overlap. Uh, but then there are some some things that are particular to, to what each of us will do. And I think that the, the gift that this arrangement will bring to us is that it was not dictated to us. I mean, we've got great job descriptions. But it is, they are job descriptions that we can grow into, depending on who we are. And, and that I very much appreciate. So that collaborative model uh, that we want to see 
across the region will begin between us and, and learning to collaborate together based on our giftedness and supporting each other in the ministries that we are called to do um, is really going to, to be foundational all the way back to how the organization uh, is designed. So in the few moments we have left, um, love for each of you to share you know, what your hope is for this new fellowship. Shane, we'll start with you. Um, you know, for as you mentioned, two decades I've, I've lived in a world without borders. <laughs> and then I come back to a state and regional organization. And, and this understanding that there's, there's these solid lines that somehow keep us from interacting beyond anything. And then Great Rivers is formed where uh, these three formerly autonomous states have come together in realization that we can do more together and better together. And so that for me, the, uh, the process and my hope for what GRF will become is that the borders at the edge of our regional organization. Uh, I see future collaboration between us and other uh, state and regional organizations because that is going to be how we as Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the whole, generously defined, are going to progress. If we continue to turn in upon ourselves and in upon our state and regional organization, I don't think that will move anybody further along. And so that type of collaborative process is what my hope is for GRF. Of course, to see churches thrive, to see ministers supported, uh, to see uh, dynamic ministry done inside and outside the church. One of the foundational principles throughout our region, and if you look at the our three states, and all of the lists of the worst things in the world, but we're at the top of every one of those lists. And, and all of the positive things in the world, we're dead, down towards the bottoms of those lists. And if you look at our region, what a depressing and, and depressed area. There is so much hope and potential. If anything, Great Rivers Fellowship is full of undiscovered potential. And that's my hope, that we appreciate what we have and together be able to see God's presence and God working in and through the churches of Great Rivers Fellowship in a consistent call for justice, in a consistent witness to Jesus Christ throughout our area. As Brittany said, these folks need a, a loving, caring, gracious Jesus. And that's my hope for GRF. Brittany? Um. As someone uh, who was born and raised in Mississippi, what I would love to see for our region, I would love for every little girl sitting in a church pew to know that God has called her equally and that if she chooses to pastor or to preach, she will be loved and supported equally with any of her male counterparts. I would like to see a growing youth ministry in which youth know that Jesus loves them for who they are and not for what they do and that there is not this laundry list of things they need to be doing or things they should not be doing in order to find grace. I would love to see college students who read the word thirstily, you know, uh, with an eye for 
this is how I live like Jesus. This is how I walk the Christian walk. And it's not just about picking out verses to support something that I already believe prior to looking at scripture, to build a theological foundation that actually informs their day-to-day life instead of letting their day-to-day life inform their reading of scripture. I want to see a place where the grace of Jesus is preached, the inclusion of Jesus is preached. I've watched over and over again how the church in the South excludes and excludes and excludes. And I want to see, I want to see nothing less than the kingdom of God. And that is what I am working towards, the diversity of voices and skin tones and genders and everything in between I want to see reflected in the deep south when right now everything is so it has boundaries as Shane says we're not just talking about state boundaries we have so many boundaries in the deep south that it's it's a daunting task, but I believe that God has called us to it, and I believe that what we are called to do will bring forward, uh, it will bring forward fruit in the long run, because we are walking with Christ in that. Our guests are Brittany Caldwell and Shay McNary, co-coordinators of CBF Great Rivers Fellowship. Thank you for making time to have a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. Well, our guest is the Reverend Dr. Brian Foreman. He is CBS Coordinator of Congregational Ministries. Brian, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, thanks for having me, Amy. It's good to meet you. Um, you were called to CBF in June of last year. Um, you've been at this for 12 plus months. How's it going? Well, it's going great. Uh, in fact, this is actually finishing the 12th month. I haven't even done a full year yet, uh, but it's been uh, it's been a remarkable year. There's there's still so much to learn, uh, but it's been a long year of learning and uh, bearing witness to the good things that so many of our congregations are doing throughout the fellowship. CBF Global has gone through uh, a lot of changes in the last few years, including revisioning 
how it supports congregations and clergy. So walk us through some of the key goals of congregational ministries. Yes, so I think um, the first thing that we want to do is make sure that clergy and congregations are cared for. Uh, It's easy to do this work and to do it on an island or feel like you're on an island and feel like you're alone. So one of the key pieces we want to do is make sure they feel like they're cared for. And then we also want to listen for the resources that are needed in congregational spaces. And I don't necessarily just mean the written resources or publications or anything along those lines, but how do we best come alongside clergy for well-being? How do we best come alongside congregations to flourish? And so paying attention in those spaces has been very important. And then the last piece is thinking about how we continue to lift up and collaborate with congregations in a way and and facilitate that collaboration between congregations also. There are remarkable resources already existing throughout the fellowship. We just don't always know about them. And so how how do we make that more visible and available to congregations so that we're not always reinventing the wheel? I mean, just name it. Not many people know about the CBF podcast, and that's what you're referring to, I, I assume. Well, I was, I was trying not to name that, but I mean, it is an award-winning podcast, though. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. So you have some key commitments to uh, leaders and congregations. Let's walk through some of these together. Uh, first, encouragement and support for ministries in their communities. What's, what's that all about? Look, at, at the end of the day, what we do is deeply contextual. And so for congregations to build the capacity and have the tools at hand to best minister in their context is what this one is really all about. How does the local congregation care for their local community? And that can be done through things like outreach. It can be done through things like advocacy work. Um, community collaborations around what the community has, what the community needs in order to build a stronger community. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we're called to participate in God's work in the world. And so what is God calling us to do and what is God calling us to be for our neighbors? Like Laura Ayala said from the stage of General Assembly, loving your neighbor is big enough mission to keep us busy for the rest of our days. And so how do we equip congregations to do that? Second, you talk about uh, create responsive and collaborative resources with congregations and ministry partners. Well, I think that goes back to what we were saying a few minutes ago about how do we make sure that the the resources are what's important. It'd be easy to sit in my office or to talk with colleagues within CBF and dream up and brainstorm what we think a good resource would be or what someone needs. But at the end of the day, we don't need to brainstorm that within the office. We need to be listening and learning from the fellowship itself and seeing what people are um, struggling with in their communities, where they're flourishing in their communities, and how we make sure that there's a bridge between those two things. Finally, you talk about offering uh, spiritual, educational, and leadership support for clergy and congregational leaders. What, what does that practically look like? Yeah, so obviously there are programs that we have, like our Thriving in Ministry programs, our Thriving Congregations programs. Those are pieces that invite clergy and congregations to think about how they are functioning in a space that is not just well-balanced, but is well-integrated into life. Uh, recently I heard somebody say, I don't say that I am working on work-life balance. I'm working towards work-life harmony. 
and I think that's a big piece of this, is that we don't work linear days as clergy. Our congregations don't aren't just open during that linear nine-to-five time. Uh, this are, these are our lives. These are the lives of um, are the collective lives of the congregation. So how do we make sure that folks have what they need in order to continue to work in sustainable ways, not just have a flash in the pan, get burnt out, and then disappear from the conversation or the, or the, the ministry itself? We're, you know, these are really three great commitments. Um, you know, wh- where were they born out of? They were born out of, one, listening. Uh, our, te- our team did get together, and we talked about a number of things that we're seeing and hearing across our, our, our work. Uh, the other place was in the ministry's council of the governing board. Uh, we went through some different exercises with those folks from across the fellowship to say, what, what makes CBF valuable to you? What do you need from CBF? And frankly, one of the questions was, why CBF in the first place? And when we heard things about the support of women in ministry, the support of like-minded uh, ministers who approach this world with collaborative spirits, who approach this world with open minds, who are invitational, all of those things, these are where the commitment started to come from. And folks asking for, we know we have what we need, how do we share that with the rest of the fellowship? You've got some some fine folks on your team, some more than others. Um, Give us some insight into who they are and what they do. Going in no particular order based on what you just set up. There are four folks who make up the Congregational Ministries team with myself, and that would be Davida Parnell, Chris Ajo, Jay Keevy, and Kelly Adams. Uh, And as far as what they do, it's... I'm trying to figure out how to best distill it down. I can tell you their titles and what those roles are in that space, but it obviously is oversimplifying what they do. But Jay Keedy does work with our ministerial transitions as well as our abuse prevention and response work. So he's worked functioning in those spaces to work with um, search teams with congregations, how congregations are thinking about their, their search processes when ministers are moving. He's working with ministers to help them do some discernment and clarification around when they are ready to make a move or need to make a move. Um, and then the work around abuse prevention is really helping our churches think about how we are caring for the most vulnerable in our midst. Uh, Davida Parnell is currently running our Young Baptist ecosystem and is also one of the three folks who helped reimagine and redesign our Dawnings uh, discernment process. And she will be a, a key person in delivering that and being present within congregations uh, to lead them through and their leadership teams through this congregational process. Chris Aho leads our thriving congregationals piece and if Dawnings is the what God is calling us to do, the thriving congregationals cohorts is a place where church teams can work through how do we do it. So we've got the what, what is the how. And then Kelly Adams is the newest member of our team. She has been with us just for a few months, but she's taken on uh, sort of the clergy support ecosystem, which is a fancy title like CBF likes to do, big long titles. But ultimately what it means is she's paying attention to clergy well-being through our thriving in ministry grants, through peer learning groups, through the CBF fellows. How are we doing not just leadership development from the perspective of developing them as leaders, but also leadership development from the perspective of how are we creating ways in which to extend clergy longevity in ministry. 
you've been traveling around the, the fellowship a lot this year. Um, it's interesting, both of us started our roles about the same time. I've been doing the same thing in North Carolina. Um, what are you hearing, not from clergy, but what are you hearing from lay people about what they need right now? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's twofold. Uh, one is they are finally feeling some momentum and groundedness after several years of lots of uncertainty. And so when I'm with laity, I see in them a deep desire to be present again, that they feel like they feel like they are emerging from some darkness. Um, and I think we see that in a lot of our churches that are starting to say we're we're seeing folks coming back to church. We're seeing new folks coming to our churches. We are being more invitational. And those invitations come from the lay people. And so if, if our lay folks are the ones who are inviting their neighbors and their friends to church, that's saying that this is something we believe deeply in. Uh, the other piece that I've seen from a lot of lay folks is those who have been there from the darkest of days, those who are returning, are saying, I am committed to what we're doing. Uh, but they are not saying that I'm committed to the same old status quo. It's the churches that are casting some sort of vision for the what's next, or the, the what's now. And maybe it isn't even a clear vision, but, we, but are saying we are going to be faithful to what God's calling us to do, and we're going to find that out. They're the ones where the, I think most of the lay people that I talk to are finding energy around. It's that, it's that sense of clarity of mission. It's that sense of if I'm going to be present here, it's because I'm committed to something that we are doing. And that's being the presence of Christ in the community. Right? It's, it, it isn't that I'm just coming for the song and dance of, of worship or whatever the case may be. And, and I certainly don't mean that in any way pejorative about worship. But it, they're not coming to just consume they're coming to participate. Well, I mean, I'd like to see more dancing and CBF worship experiences, but... Well, we can talk to the worship planning team for next year in Greensboro and make that happen. So as you're looking at the, the next few years, uh, what will be some of the key emphasis for congregational ministries? I think there are a couple that are going to be very important, particularly in this next year, but even moving into the next few years. And one is building the sense of what we have, understanding what we have, especially the hidden capitals that are in our communities. Um, there are seven community capitals that we talk about, political capital, financial capital, built capital, human capital, social capital, cultural capital, and financial capital. I think that's all seven of them. But these exist in some way, shape, or form in our churches and in our communities. And rather than always starting with the scarcity mindset, let's start with what we have. What has God given us and blessed us with? Because maybe that's part of what God's calling us to be and to do. Um, and so I think that's one of the pieces, is to begin asking this question about what do we already have and celebrate that and then, and then lead, lead into our communities from that. The other one is... Um, this, let's be honest, we're coming up on 2024, and we're going to be in a new election cycle. And toxic polarization is a significant piece of our culture. And so how do we learn ways to communicate and stay in relationship with people with whom we disagree? How do we have these hard conversations one-on-one -on -one as well as uh, in a more collective space of a, maybe a congregational process? So that's one of the other things that we're focusing on is how are we making sure that we learn and remember how to talk to one another. 
because the trauma of the pandemic that we oftentimes don't pay attention to is some of the social trust that eroded came from the fact that every person we interacted with, we perceived them as having the potential to give us a virus that could kill us. And so social trust really was eroded, um, even if it was subconsciously. And so how do we begin to learn to, to trust one another and to lean into these things that we know how to do as people of faith? You and I, um, out of the generosity of our deep wealth, um, sponsored the podcast stage this week. I mean, the number was astronomical that we contributed to sponsor for this new project we're working on called Clergy Confessions. That's right. Um, you know, what would you want people to know about this this new podcast series? Yeah, thanks for that. Part, you know, part of the reason that we started having conversations about this new podcast was simply because you and I, we hear these stories. We hear them over dinner tables. We hear them over coffee conversations. We hear them in just relationships with other clergy that we're around. And, and it's easy to just lean into those stories as something humorous or tragic or eye roll or whatever the case may be. But at a deeper level, there's something we can learn from it. And, we, and if we're going to be honest about clergy well-being and congregational well-being, then these stories need to be heard. But they don't just need to be heard. They need to be discussed from a perspective of, okay, so what can we learn from this that makes our congregations stronger? What can we learn from this that helps our clergy express some things that maybe we all need to be listening to? And so that's one of the things that I really love about this, this new podcast is that we're not just telling a story in order to make fun of something or, we're not take, or, not, or to not take it seriously. We want to use it as an opportunity to create more conversation space around this thing happened to me, this is what other clergy can learn from it, and this is what our congregations can learn from it. Uh, so just a heads up, like I, I paid my half of the bill, and they're still looking for, for your half, so... Um, uh, the check's in the mail. Yeah, yeah. Our guest is the Reverend Dr. Brian Foreman, CVF Coordinator of Congregational Ministries and co-host of the Clergy Confessions Podcast. Brian, it's good to meet you. Thanks for making time to have this conversation. Thanks, Andy. This is really nice. I've heard so much about you. <laughs> we are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.